From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Political appointees have until the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden at noon, January 20th, to submit their resignation letters. A memo from White House Deputy Chief of Staff Chris Liddell says the resignations will ensure the transition happens in, quote, an orderly manner. GovExec reports President Obama asked for resignation letters in November 2016. The State Department will stand up a new bureau for diplomatic efforts on cyber issues. The department says the Bureau of Cyberspace Security and Emerging Technologies will work with allies and partners on securing cyberspace and other functions. NextGov reports state says the bureau's been in the works since June of 2019. The Department of Homeland Security has a new Chief Information Security Officer. Ken Bible will take the job Paul Beckman held until about a year ago. FedScoop reports Bible joins DHS from the Marine Corps. He was Deputy CIO there. Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos have both stepped down in response to President Trump's actions last Wednesday. Other high-ranking officials are saying they're considering stepping down and it could impact the transition process. Max Steyer's president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. Max, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. There are a number of other transition issues at stake here, too. I mentioned a moment ago, Chris Liddell is just now asking political appointees for their letters of resignation and giving them until Inauguration Day to step down. President Obama did the same thing in November of 2016. The deadline then was December 7th. What does this churn the people, the careers who've gone through transitions before are not used to mean for their ability to be ready to hand off at noon on uh, uh, January 20th? Uh, Francis, where do you begin? <laughs> uh, it, you know, I think that you've outlined a whole bunch of challenges here. And I mean, from the outset, this is an extraordinarily difficult task in the ordinary times. You think about how large and complex our government is and Taking it over is amazing. It's $5 trillion organization, 4 million people, uh, you know, hundreds of operating units, and I think mistakenly 4,000 political appointees that are typically named. And obviously, this is no ordinary time. We have such uh, large issues that have to be addressed by our country and by the new team coming in, the pandemic, uh, the cyber attack, the economic issues, the racial equity concerns. I mean, and these are the things we know about, and we also know there's more coming. So you put your finger on it, it, the most important issue, which I think is the career workforce, because at the end of the day, while the focus is on the political team coming in, it's that career workforce that gets the job done in government day in, day out. And the most fundamental task that the new political team has is actually engaging that career team effectively. And there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, if you look at morale in the government, uh, we don't actually have the most current information because the Trump administration do the uh, Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey till very late, so we don't have the information. But we know there are a lot of people that are, are hurting, and, and it's a real problem. So um, the issue of turnover and leadership is a profound one. This administration has seen both the slowest appointment process as well as the most churn of any modern president. Uh, and the Biden team's going to have to right the ship, and it begins with getting their team in quickly, making sure that they're engaging the career workforce uh, effectively, and, and working well together. And it's not only up to them. I mean, part of the challenge here is the Senate is fundamental in this and, um, you know, the track record is not super good. Uh, the time 
to, to get people confirmed has doubled uh, from the Reagan administration to the Trump administration. We can't afford that. Leaders in place um, is, is, are, is vital to the functioning of our government. In the actual handoff that's happening in the, in the next nine days, Max, what's the difference between an organization where a political appointee, uh, Senate confirmed, is leading that handoff from the Trump administration to the Biden administration and a place where that political appointee is no longer in place and maybe it is a deputy or it is a career that's serving as an acting person that's doing that handoff. Does that make a difference to what the incoming team actually has to work with? I don't think it makes a very big difference. There are so many other issues that are larger, I think, going on right now. I think what is relevant, though, is that you need to make sure that the career workforce is being signaled in the right way that they matter and that they need to keep focused on the job at hand. Part of the challenge of this time period is a lot of people freeze. Their perspective is they don't know what the new team is going to want. Uh, they still have the old team in place, and they hunker down. Uh, my advice to the career workforce, frankly, is to lean in, not to wait. Uh, they know what should be happening. They should move forward with what should be happening, and they should be engaging the political appointees, not just waiting to be told you know, what needs to happen. Um, it's difficult. People will feel that they're putting themselves at risk, but we're at a time in which there's so many people in our country that need their help that, frankly, they're going to have to do things differently. And that would be my last point I would make is, our government has already changed in very dramatic ways because of the pandemic. It has pivoted to a virtual environment and, and being more effective in many instances. And my hope is that the starting point for the new administration is to harvest those innovations and make those uh, steady state going forward as opposed to trying to return to status quo ante when we eventually get beyond the pandemic. Given the flux that the pandemic has generated, 1201 on January 20th, those uh, civil servants all have new bosses, or maybe they don't have those bosses yet because of the issues with the transition. What's your advice to those people to do from that point until there's somebody definitive in place that they're answering to? Well, so again, my, my, my strong counsel is to lean in. You, the, those career people, frankly, are going to know better what should happen there than the new political team, and they should be moving forward. I think that the Biden team is going to approach this a little differently than administrations in the past. They'll be putting probably more people in who don't require Senate confirmation faster uh, so that there will be um, you know, representatives of the new political team in there early. Uh, but it's still going to be chaotic. It's still going to be difficult. Uh, and it's still going to require, um, in my view, uh, a, a, a more um, uh, aggressive approach from the career employees uh, to actively lead uh, from where they are right now. And again, there's a sense of risk. There's a sense of not knowing, is the new team going to appreciate this? Where do they want to go? And my view is, start from where you think you should go and go for it. Communicate to the new people coming in why you did what you did and help them see what should happen. Uh, and we'll all benefit if, if people lean in in that way. 30 seconds left, Max. You mentioned the fact that the Biden administration is expected to put in some of the politicals that don't need Senate confirmation. That's different than we've seen in the past. Is that a change, a, a, stra a strategic change that you think will be different moving forward? Or is that just unique to this transition, do you think? I think it's something likely to be done in the in the future as well. The big problem is that you can't operate the government as we're doing it right now with a confirmation process that is doubled in length in which um, success is getting, you know, Trump got two, uh, you know, Obama, I think, got seven of his cabinet in on day one. It's so slow. That's the cabinet. Um, you know, uh, Obama had the high water mark at 
uh, whatever it is, you know, 30 sacks or 39 that confirm people after 100 days. That's not good enough. So we need to change this process. We need fewer Senate-confirmed appointees. We need fewer political appointees. We need to improve this process so that we can have less, um, you know, uh, discontinuity in the leadership change that the transition is bringing. Because it's a problem for all of us, given the nature of the problems we have and the speed with which that they need to be addressed. Max Steyer, thanks very much. As always, appreciate your time. Take care and be safe. Take care. Up next, taking the right approach to the solar winds breach straight ahead on Government Matters, employing deterrence the right way. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The, uh, the Department of Justice says hackers accessed emails at its agency during the SolarWinds breach. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency says hackers guessed passwords to gain entry to government systems. Elizabeth Braw is a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. She's writing about the SolarWinds breach in Defense One. Elizabeth, the title of your piece is The SolarWinds Hack Doesn't Demand a Violent Response. And you write this, a massive chorus of voices is calling on Joe Biden to hit back hard. Deterrence is needed, we're told. Here's the thing, we already have deterrence. What deterrence do we already have, Elizabeth? All countries have deterrence all the time. It's it's what they what they communicate to the world that they are likely to do in case of an attack. So with the solar winds hack, I think it's important to remember that what we know to date is that it was an espionage operation. It wasn't. Uh, it didn't go beyond that. It didn't disrupt the the hackers. Didn't disrupt the networks they got into. So I think we can. Uh, assume from that that U.S. deterrence is working. The, the hacker chose not to go that extra step that they could have gone. Of course, we can't prove that. But the thing is um, that if we, uh, on the basis of what we know now, if we retaliate massively, we can't, we don't have a way of stepping up in case something even worse happens. You write in this piece something that I think people have danced around in talking about solar winds, but have not expressly said. The United States and other Western countries, too, engage in espionage. That's the question that's been in the back of my mind throughout all of this. How much outrage and how much action should we take, given the fact that, if we're honest, we're probably at least trying to do the same things? Well, that's exactly the situation. And yes, it sounds bad that the Russians have infiltrated all these government agencies or have hacked into all these government agencies' servers. But the reality is, in espionage, you try to get as much information as you can. The US is, as you said, trying to do the same thing. Other countries try to do the same thing. And if we, uh, if the US retaliates in, in a massive fashion against this hack, well, <laughs> imagine what the Russians will do when they discover a, a, a U.S. hack of this proportion, or maybe not not as, as big as this one, depending on how, good, uh, on how good the Americans are. So I, I think it's important to remember espionage has gone on forever. It will continue going on. This is just uh, the, a new way in which it's done. And uh, 
it's in no country's interest, if we are honest, it's in no country's interest to punish the other side because then the other side will punish back. And that's what you allude to in this line. Deterrence rests on credibility. Uh, and you cite Dr. Strangelove of all, play, of all uh, movies, and I appreciate that reference. Uh, deterrence is the art of producing in the mind, the, uh, in, uh, mind of the enemy the fear to attack. That's really what we're going for here, not the actual attack itself, it strikes me. That's right. So when people say, oh, we need deterrence, what they mean, in, what they mean is we need retaliation. Well, retaliation is when your deterrence has failed. So you need to, to indicate before anything happens that if you do what you're planning to do, then you will be punished. And then ideally, if deterrence works, the, the, the other side won't do it. But if, if your threat is so massive that it's, an out of, it's, that it's disproportionate to the attack, then that the other side won't take you seriously, uh, which is, for example, what happened uh, ahead of the first Gulf War when um, President Bush reminded Saddam Hussein that the U.S. had nuclear weapons and Tariq Aziz, the uh, Iraqi foreign minister, handed the, the letter back to James Baker and said, I'm not going to take this to Saddam Hussein because it just was out of proportion. Uh, you use a term here that I would like you to define and explain how it applies to what you're proposing. The term is asymmetric punishment. What's that mean and how does it fit this narrative? So it means that you respond uh, not uh, by uh, wrapping up the, the violence or, or the aggression, but you respond in a, in a different way. So if the other side uh, attacks by means of a cyber, a cyber attack, you can do something completely different. And so the, the point is that you have to be unpredictable. Obviously, you shouldn't be unpredictable as to whether or not you will respond, because if, if uh, that's the case, then uh, it's it's easier for the other side to, to attack. But if you don't communicate whom you're going to uh, retaliate against, in which manner you're going to retaliate, and when you're going to retaliate, that increases the uncertainty. And the surprise factor is, is really what's uh, uh, what's central to deterrence that keep the other the other side in fear and and if they can't know how you're going to respond of course they're not going to dare to to, to conduct that attack uh, we have about a minute left Elizabeth but that uh, those emotional responses and and the, the mental ideas take me to the end of your piece where you write deterrence is not primarily about weapons it's about psychology. That idea, that unpredictability, that uncertainty and fear are the most important elements of that psychology, I would imagine. Yes, it is. And so it doesn't matter whether your tool is, is nuclear weapons or whether it's cyber hacks or whether it's sanctions. It's how you communicate that you will retaliate and it's better for the other side not to attack. So to instill in, this, in, in the enemy the fear, to, the fear to attack, it's back to Dr. Strangelab again. Elizabeth Bra, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Up next, IT modernization at the Social Security Administration. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a plan for the agency to achieve its IT goals. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. The Social Security Administration is reviewing a strategy proposal for information technology upgrades, but that strategy isn't just an IT strategy. Greg Giddens is partner at Potomac Ridge Consulting, former chief acquisition officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. He's one of the members of the group that devised the strategy. Greg, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I note, and we talked a little bit before we went on the air about the fact that this is not just an IT strategy. It encompasses all four of the major areas of operation of an agency. It encompasses people. It, of course, encompasses IT. It encompasses acquisition and financial management. Was that the goal that you and your colleagues were going for when you started to put this together? Uh, well, Francis, good evening, and, and thanks so much. It's always good to connect with you. Uh, it was one of the first items that we discussed when we met, and really when the Social Security Advisory Board uh, chartered us, and Kim Hildred, the chair of the board, has been great and was supportive uh, of us working in this direction as well. When we first got together, we thought about, we can't just come up with an IT solution, uh, that organizations uh, typically will fail when they look at IT in isolation. We have to think about the business model, the processes, the technology is certainly important, the people aspect, and so we want to give a well-rounded report. We didn't want our role to be perceived as another oversight body, as another group, uh, just to come in and say, here's what you didn't do right. We want to really give some ideas and really be deliberative about input and recommendations we thought could move them forward in a holistic manner. You and I have something in common. We've seen a million of these IT strategy uh, documents over the years. This is the first one, though, that's led with operating model recommendations. And to that point, you and your colleagues write, the operating model must address how today's interactions are simplified, streamlined, or made more responsive to public needs. You're really getting at the core of the mission delivery before you're getting to the other stuff, it looks like. Uh, absolutely. And Adam Blutus, who was the chair uh, of our panel and, and did a great job, was one of the, the good the early decisions advisory board made was to get out on the chairs. And Mark Foreman was one of the leads that helped us think about this operating model to give a context for any IT modernization or even digitization strategy. You need a strong operating model. You talk about, uh, you use the word digital, and that idea of IT modernization versus digital transformation comes to mind. What's the difference and how is that applicable in the work that you and your colleagues did, Greg? So when we think about IT modernization, it starts to focus in really on pipes and ping and infrastructure and improving this by a millisecond or improving this load time. And that's important. I mean, there's a lot of private companies that invest, in fact, a couple of recent studies you know, if they were to shave off 100 milliseconds of a load time, they get a 1% increase in revenue because of the way that people interact in that digital environment. And the digital transformation starts to bring in those business aspects and really be able to think about technology, people, and process. Because if you think about those as Venn diagrams, you really need those to overlap to really make change that's sustainable. If you only have technology and people, then you'll have chaotic automation. If you only have technology and process, people won't be involved. There'll be dissension. And if you have process and people without technology, they'll be frustrated. So you really need the, the mix of all three of those to move an organization forward. The second group of recommendations that you get to before you even get to the IT recommendations are governance infrastructure recommendations. Why is that the next logical step after looking at the operating model, Greg? Because once you walk through and you have an operating model, you understand you've done some journey mapping, understand both from a citizen and employee perspective and stakeholders, how you want to operate. You need some way then to make decisions based on how do you allocate resources? How do you make event-based decisions? Uh, so that when you have a program, a project, or a set of projects in place, you have a framework to make sound reason decisions on that. A lot of times organizations jump 
too far ahead. They don't really do the planning or set in a, a decision-making process. They just start executing and implementing uh, and they'll wind up uh, going nowhere fast. I note at the beginning of this work that you and your colleagues point out the 2017 IT modernization plan at SSA is estimated at $691 million. Lack of money is not the problem. That strikes me that as you get into the IT recommendations, the problem or the problem you want to try to help them avoid is an issue more with how the money's being spent and how they're measuring what they get. Am I reading that right? Uh, you absolutely are, and measuring is really important, and we tried to talk about uh, in our recommendations for the uh, actual IT modernization plan, they need to really bake in some of those metrics, and not just metrics that are very IT-focused, but link those to metrics that are outcome-focused, right? Try to find out how is IT being used as a lever to help improve service, either to the citizenry that Social Security serves, and about one in seven Americans uh, receive uh, some type of support from Social Security Administration. So how does IT leverage and improve that? Don't just make the metrics IT focused, make them business and outcome focused that are then enabled by IT. Uh, we have about a minute left, Greg, and I note the fingerprints of one of your panelists, our friend Martha Doris, uh, in the uh, last batch of recommendations, all based on customer experience. There are four of them, including a chief customer officer at SSA. What would that person do, and where would that person fit into the leadership of the organization? So uh, you read that right. Martha was the stalwart that kept beating the drum about the customer experience, the citizen experience uh, moving forward. Uh, and really what this person would do would work with uh, perhaps a chief business officer to represent the interests of citizens across the Social Security Administration. Many times in organizations, when you get in the top conference room and meeting with the senior leadership, if you look around the table, you have all the functionals represented, HR, IT, acquisition, you have the business lines, but you don't have a seat for the customer or for the citizen. And what that chief uh, customer officer would do would be to fill that seat and always keep asking the questions about how does this impact our citizens, our stakeholders, and help the organization have an outside-in perspective. Greg Giddens, thanks very much for coming on. As always, I appreciate your time. My pleasure, my friend. Have a great evening. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every one of our programs by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.